Well, we've been known for many things over the years. In fact, back in the Bible times, Christians were known as people of the way. In the book of Acts, it says that they were first, we were first called Christians in Antioch. And so the church had been going on a while before we even adopted the name Christian. Now, what does that mean today? Well, every generation seems to want to come along with a new phrase for Christianity. Why is that? Well, sometimes words lose their meaning. If you were to ask somebody today what a, what, uh, what a Christian is, they would say maybe a, a person goes to church, they're a really good person, they try to do the best they can. And so we said, well, no, what we're meaning, we're meaning is a born-again Christian, which is really kind of doubling up on what you're saying because it means the same thing. And then that came to mean something totally different. And even the movies using born again to mean something else. And so we went back to the word saved. Well, saved from what? And then the newer generation has come along with this word or this phrase, Christ follower. I'm a Christ follower. I was talking to a young pastor just a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you know, the problem with the church today, he said, is that we do not understand what it means to be a Christ follower. And I just thought, well, this so happens. I'm preaching a series on that. Because I think there is, is a lot of confusion. Some people say, well, you know, I go to church, I do the best I can. And, uh, you know, I pray sometimes, I read the Bible sometimes, I feed the hungry sometimes, I occasionally do uh, other social ministry, or maybe I do ministry within the church. I'm a Christ follower. But what does that really mean? Kyle Eidelman wrote a book. In fact, I've been reading books all the way from last summer, um, looking to this series. And uh, one of the books I read was not a fan by Kyle Eidelman. And he said, sometimes we're not followers of Jesus, but we're fans of Jesus. And he defined it as a fan is someone close enough to Jesus to get the benefits without getting involved. It's knowing about him without knowing him. Well, I can identify with that. And maybe many of you can as well. Growing up, I had idols in my life. I was fans of certain, uh, for example, ball players. One in particular was Mickey Mantle. Uh, many of you uh, know that name when I mention it. He's a Hall of Fame baseball player uh, for the New York Yankees. He uh, played from 1951 to 1968. And before I share with you anything else, let, let me just share with you what I'm about to share may be a little bit off because I purposely did not check the Internet. I'm going totally by memory when I was about 18 years old, okay? 18 years he played. Uh, he was the most valuable player in the American League in 1956, 57, and 62. His best year in 1956, we won the Triple Crown, the most home runs, RBIs, and highest batting average. Um, and he was the first one to do that in quite a while, and the last one to do that until Frank Robbins came along about 10 years later. So he was not only that, but he's hit 536 lifetime home runs. When he retired, that was the third highest, right behind uh, Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. Uh, also, he, the biggest claim to fame, a record that will never be broken, is that he had 18 lifetime home runs in World Series competition. And nobody's come close to that since, and probably never will, because not that many people are playing in 12 World Series. So how do you know all that? Well, my wife will tell you, I know more useless, useless baseball trivia than anybody she's ever met, okay? But I was a fan. Man, I knew everything there was to know. I thought about Mickey Mantle, at least for his playing days. But I didn't know him. I never met him. I saw him play one time in an old-timers game and when I was a kid. 
and he hit a double over the left field wall at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. That was the only time I've seen him play. But I was a true fan of his. I found out later, as an adult, right before he passed away, he received Christ. Bobby Richardson, who was a teammate of his back in the 60s, uh, led him to the Lord right before his death. He said he was saved in the ninth inning. But if you were to look at his life by his own admission, he was not a good father, not a good husband. Not only that, but he was an alcoholic and really lived for himself. He would admit that. And so I didn't know about him at all, but I was a fan. Well, some of us are like that with Jesus. We know a lot about him. In fact, there are people that study the Bible, and they can tell you verse after verse in theology, and they can talk, talk about the, the theology and philosophy in the Bible and the different uh, things that we argue about in theology, but they don't really know him. They're a fan, but they're not a follower. And so what is the difference? Well, as we get into this series of messages on what it means to be a Christ follower, we really need to start off at a foundational level. And that is we need to define the relationship. You know, some of you that are dating right now, and I don't want to put any pressure on you. You know, this may be the lunchtime conversation for some of you. But uh, we define the relationship. There comes a time where you've dated for a while and you sit down and say, we must, I think it's time to define the relationship. Well, what about defining our relationship with the Lord? Well, we want to start back in the book of Genesis, because just like any other thing, when we're looking at study something from the Bible, we need to start off where it begins in order to rightly interpret it. So I want to read you a passage this morning in Genesis chapter 1. It says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. As we look at this passage, I want us to see just two things as we begin this series of messages. Just two things. Number one, I want us to see the connection, our connection to God. And then secondly, the calling, some of the characteristics, the callings of God in our life. It's right here in this passage. Let's look at it. First of all, the connection. Look back in verse one once again. It says, then God said, after he, all, he created everything, and we've gone through about five days here of creation. He's created all these things. He said, this is good, this is good, this is good. He comes to this passage where he says, let us. Nowhere in the creation story we find God in the plural. But we find this in the name of God, Elohim, is a plural form of a singular God. Very confusing in the Hebrew unless you believe in the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The only thing I want to bring out from this, because the Trinity is uh, another theological argument altogether, and it's a whole thing in the Bible, and it'll take a long time to discuss it, and nobody ever reaches a conclusion. But let me just say this from this. He says, let us, he's saying, we are in community with one another. Even before God created anything, he was in community. You and I were made for community, not only with God, but with others as well. We can find the pattern of that all the way back to the Trinity of God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit fellowshiped and communed with one another. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion. 
He was saying, look, the image of God, we read about this in Colossians. In fact, uh, as we went through the book of Colossians, oh, I'd say about two months ago, we read Colossians 1.15 where Jesus was made in the image of God. He created in the image of God. And not created, but he was born into the image of God. And we have this word icon. We're made in the image or the likeness of God. Now, how is that significant? Well, God has made all the animals by this time, made all the insects, made everything else, but he's not made anything that was able and had the ability to communicate with him, to, communi- to have community with him, to have a relationship with him. But now we find that that's exactly what God is doing. Now, how did he make us in the image of God? Well, it's certainly not, we don't have all his power. We don't know, have all his knowledge. He made us spiritually, however, like him, able to commune with him, able to have a relationship. Now, no other animal had that. You know, God has made you special. You've heard that many times before. And you look over the six billion people in the world and say, wow, we're all special, you know, in our own way. You know, well, God made your fingerprints. Well, that means my fingers must be special. But what about me? But think for a moment all about creation, just for a moment. You have a situation where God's created every single animal. How many animals are there in the world? He created all the fish of the sea. How many fish are in the sea and the rivers and the lakes? How many insects are there in Florida? (laughs) No. No. How many insects are there in the world? He's created all these billions and trillions of things, and he says, I want to make one, create something that would have relationship with me. And as we look at this, he created everything else around it just so the man can survive and thrive. And so he created male and female. As he created them, he created us with a capacity to have a spiritual relationship within him. We had something no animal had, and that is the spirit alive within us. Now you say, well, the the spirit was marred. We sinned against God. We'll come at that in just a moment. But what does it mean for you and I to be in the icon of God, to have this kind of community? Well, it means that it changes how we see ourselves. It changes that. It changes our self-image. Now, I know in the 90s, 1990s, and 2000s, early 2000s, we convinced our children they could do anything, which is not really a good thing, as we found out, because just like me, I, I wanted to be a ball player growing up. I didn't have the talent to do that. Some of you may want to be a singer when you grow up, or you wanted to be a singer. You just didn't have that kind of talent to make it in, in, in the concert world. And so that's not necessarily so that God created you to do anything that you want to do but rather he created you for a purpose. But there's a self-esteem issue here because as we see ourselves, we see ourselves as as having rock-solid value. That's right. You have value. You have worth. Now, the secular world has a hard time explaining that. A therapist will tell you you have worth, you have value, but has no basis for saying that whatsoever. It's just that I want you to believe that so you'll feel better about yourself. No, this is not a psychological thing. You have worth. You are special. You have value to God and to this world because God created you in his image. Again, that image was marred for all of sin. 
and come short of the glory of God. You see, God created us in his glory. We share in the glory of God. However, when we, Adam sinned against God, it messed that up. And so God now is trying to, through salvation, bring us back to where we were originally with him and God's original design to have a relationship with him. But not only that, but it, it changes how we, we really treat one another, doesn't it? I mean, after all, if we're all created in the glory of God and all in the same boat because we've sinned against the Lord, then to treat someone without dignity would be to really have a slap in the face of the glory of God. It would treat them, not to recognize that they're built in the image of God, they were made in the image of God, to not recognize the glory of God within them. Now, I know, again, the people outside the church have a difficult time really relating to this and also explaining it. A professor will go to a political rally and stand up and say, how dare these people and you as a city council or commissions or the county or whatever treat some of our citizens as animals? And then he'll go to the classroom and he'll teach that we're all just basically animals. Think about it for just a moment. It's a very difficult thing. It's like, this is what I want to believe, and so therefore I'm going to believe it without really any basis of real reason for it. Dear friends, if we are all created in the image of God, and whether, and yes, we are marred, but we're all marred together. We've all sinned against the Lord. We're all in the same boat. Then not to treat someone with dignity, no matter who they are, is really not recognizing the glory of God. Martin Luther King uh, would say, if he were alive today, and in fact, he writ he's written in his books, the reason for what he did in his life through racial uh, reconciliation and racial rights had to do with the fact that every person is born in the image of God. So that's what we are. We're born in the image of God. We're born for his glory. We have the glory of God in us. We've got to do something, and God needs to help us do something about the sin that separates us from God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But then I want us to see our calling in the Lord, our calling. And we find it three, three basic things in this passage. Now, I'm not saying that there are not other things necessarily. This is not an exhaustive list. But this is an exhaustive list in this passage, and it's significant in the fact that God wrote the book of Genesis, and when he sent it to us, he was telling us these are the three things. Remember what I said last week, that the whole gospel be summed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus Christ died, according to the scriptures, he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. Paul said, of first importance, I give you these things. And so we look in the back of, Gen book in the, uh, back in the book of Genesis, and we find three basic things that are foundational to everything about our relationship with God. Three, three words. One is relationship. We look in verse 26 again. He made after our likeness, our, in the image of God, made after our likeness. Verse 27, he created man in his own image, in the image of God. Three times he mentions this. And he created him male and female, and he created them. Notice it says, 
he had dominion over the fish of the sea. We'll come back to that in our next point. But all through, through chapter 1, 2, and 3, we find him in a relationship with man and with Adam and Eve. We see that. In chapter 3, the Bible says he was walking. They were walking with God in the cool of the garden. Now, it says the voice of God, so evidently they could not see God. The Bible says that in order, if we saw God, we would surely die. We couldn't stand his glory. We couldn't, couldn't live in that kind of glory. But they were walking with the voice of God in the wilderness, in the garden. And so we find there in the scriptures, there's a relationship that's happening. There's a, another couple of times in the Bible where God goes over a different aspect of, of the uh, creation story. One is in John chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. John chapter 1. And we find in John chapter 1 that um, it's talking about the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Word, Jesus Christ, created everything. But then in Proverbs chapter 8, it goes over the glories of God as he created this. And in verse 30, it says, uh, it says, we were his delight. That's what it says. Read it. Proverbs 8.30. We were his delight. Now, what does this word mean? The word delight means basically joy, to enjoy, to dance. Now, I know I shouldn't mention that in a Baptist church. I know, I know. You know, can Baptists dance? Well, some people, some can. Some can't, you know, it depends on your coordination, I guess. But uh, in Proverbs 30, uh, verse, uh, verse 30, chapter 8, to dance, to play, to enjoy. So you get the picture of what's going on in Genesis. The Trinity of God is in joy. The Trinity of God is like at a, at dancing with joy over the creation of man and invites us as men and women to come in to come in to the joy, to come into that relationship, to dance with him, as it were. Now, I know a lot of people describe the Christian life as totally different. They say, well, you know, as long as I go to church, and uh, well, you know, I really haven't thought much about God all week. Easter was a great service, and I enjoyed that. I came back for a little bit. You know, I, I just, after Easter, I thought, I'm going to really think about God every day this week. I'm gonna, but you didn't do that. And then, you know, you pray some, but your prayers are maybe like a note in a bottle. You know, you throw it in the ocean and hope God, it reaches God somehow. You read the Bible occasionally. And so that's your, you know, you, you feed the hungry occasionally. Not all the time. Just whenever you get a chance, you go and that's a good thing. And so that's your Christian life. But that's not what the Christian life is really all about. It's coming to his joy. So how can I have all this joy? How can I do all that? And, and have the burdens that I have in this life. Well, know this, a Christ follower is one who is enjoying a vital relationship and communicating with God in the midst of following him in his steps. We find God gives us the power to do that. We do. We find God moving in such a way with this, the power of the Holy Spirit that says, will come upon you. And when he does, when he does you'll be my witnesses. But you say, yeah, but that... You know, there's reality there, and the reality is maybe things really do go pretty well. You know, Adrian Rogers, former pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church, Memphis, Tennessee, really one of the great pastors of the past generation for sure, used to say that all of life is riding on two rails, like a train. One rail, you have problems, 
The other rail, you have great joy and no problems. And they just sort of run side by side all the time. So how do you handle that? How do you handle the fact and try to explain somehow the fact that God has invited us into a relationship of joy, and yet in real life, there's so many problems, so many trials? Well, it's the second word, the word stewardship. Now, when we think about stewardship, we just think about money, but it's far more than that. So let's read about it here in, um, in verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. This word dominion means rule. He says, I want you to have rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed, that is in the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them uh, for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, etc., etc. And God said in verse 31, it's very good. So we get the picture of what God's doing here. He's creating a world, and he says, look, Adam, Eve, I'm giving you dominion. I'm putting you as rulers over this. Now, did, did that mean that we own the earth? No, the Bible says in Psalm 40, 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof in the world and those who dwell in it. So we don't own it, but somehow we're responsible for it. And the Bible calls that in an old English word, the word steward. A steward is a manager of someone else's household or possessions. And it has a lot more to do than just money. It's all your talent. It, it's your talent your time, yes, your treasures, it's the gospel. The God, I'm responsible, you and I are responsible for sharing the greatest news of all time. You and I are responsible for our families, responsible for our careers, responsible for our jobs. We're, giving, we're given, as it were, a piece of the rock. Now, why does God do that? Why would God give us something? Well, God is the owner, and we are the managers and just like if some of you here are financial planners, are financial planners, and we'll just pretend that I'm giving you my retirement funds in order to invest them. Well, you take them, and I say, now, before you do that, let me just say, there's a few things I don't really want to invest in. You know, nothing to do with pornography or anything like that, nothing really bad. And you say, hey, no problem, no problem. But then you go out and, the, and you do that. And you come back after about six months, and I look at the report, and I say, look, look what you've invested in. Look what I've invested in. I don't want to support these things. You say, yeah, but look how much money you've made. You say, yeah, but it's not your money. It's my money. And I'm the investor. You, you need to take your lead from me. Right? And you would say, well, yeah, that's true. Because he's the owner. God is the owner, and I am the manager. I'm, I'm the manager. Why, why would God do this? Well, it's a trust. It's my responsibility. Because of the trust that God's given me, I have, like, as it were, a piece of the rock. I'm a participant in the glory of God, in the world, as it, you know, just like the uh, illustration I gave you uh, a couple of weeks ago about the pastor who takes his son camping. And he says, look, there's a wood burning stove. If we don't put enough wood in here and keep the fire going, we're going to freeze to death. And it's your responsibility to go get the wood. Well, is he telling his son, look, son, if you don't go get the wood, I'm going to let you freeze to death. 
No, but he's giving him a responsibility. He feels part. And that's what God has done us, done for us. He's given us a trust with everything that we have, everything, because we're going to leave everything, all the time, all the talents, all the treasures, even the gospel message, as it were, on earth. And when we die, we leave with nothing. So it's a trust, but it's also a tool. It's a tool to bring glory to the Lord and dignity back to mankind. It's a tool to minister to other people. It's a tool to reach them for Christ, that God would bring them back around to his original design to have a relationship with him. Then our stewardship is also a test. Did you know the only thing you and I are going to be required of when we get to heaven, God's going to say, here's your stewardship. Here's your time. Here's your talent. Here's your spiritual gifts. Now, you get talents when you're born the first time. You get spiritual gifts when you receive Christ. A whole new set of talents called spiritual gifts. Now, I've given you these things. What did you do with them? That's, go, that's what the question he's going to ask me. What did you do with what I gave you to do with? So it's a test. And so God is saying to us, there's a stewardship involved. A steward, knowing that God owns everything, and I am the manager. And stewardship leads to something that's really kind of all-encompassing important. And that is the lordship of Christ, our worship of the Lord. So, so far we've got what the relationship, the stewardship, and now the lordship or worship. Look in verse 16. I want to just skip ahead there. It says in verse 2 or chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day that you eat, you shall surely die. Wow. Look, eat of everything in the garden, everything, every tree except for one. Why? Why? God didn't have to put that tree there. Well, obviously, it was a test to say, are you going to recognize me as God, as Lord of your life, as master of your life, or not? It was, it was a test for him. So he was asking him, who has the rule in your life? Now, we've said in this that stewardship is, is the role. God's the owner. I'm the manager. But there's also a rule. He is, he is Lord God, and I'm not. And I'm to take my lead as a steward of God. I'm to take my lead from the owner, which means I follow down his path and what he wants me to do in life, which greatly includes what's in the Bible. The lordship of Christ. A Christ follower has Jesus Christ on the throne of his life. Now, you say, well, he's on the throne of my life, but really that's kind of tough to do. I mean, I you're asking me to abandon something else and put Jesus on the throne? Well, listen, something's on the throne, right? We've talked about that last couple of years. Something is on the throne of your life. Who do you go to when you're hurt? Really hurting. Who's on the throne of your life? What happens when certain things go wrong in life? So it just depends. You know, some things go wrong, eh, just kind of brush it off. Some things go wrong. Oh, man, they devastate. But some things in life, boy, if they were to go wrong, it would just crush me. What crushes you? What phone call could you get right now that would just devastate your life so much that you just don't feel like right now you could recover? 
and it's different from everyone for everyone. You know, men and women sometimes don't understand one another. Somebody, um, for example, a child goes through a very, very difficult time, and it looks like, man, he just don't know if we can recover or not. Listen, it, it bothers, if it's, if it's a godly dad, it really bothers him. But somehow he can operate in life with all this going on. However, his wife, not so much. It, it may crush her. On the other hand, he comes home one day, and he's 50 years old, and he says, I've lost my job. I don't know how I can get another one. And she says, hey, honey, that's terrible, awful. But hey, don't worry about it. I've got confidence God's going to provide something. And he's thinking, oh, I know God can provide something, but will he? I know he can, but will he? It crushes him. I've lost my career. What's the difference? The children may be on the wife's throne, the mom's throne in life. While the man's thrown in life right there, front and center, his career. But think about it for just a moment. Why is that throne, why is the career on his throne? Because it has something to do with him. Him. Uh, my recognition. My fame and glory. My money. Make more money. I don't have to trust in God so much because I make more money. I get promotions, everybody admires it. me. It, it, it really, everything on the throne but Jesus really points back to us. So what's on the throne? What's there? What is the lordship in life? Your Lord in life. What gives you security? What puts you, uh, your affections? Where are your affections, your hopes, your dreams? You say, well, pastor, I'm confused. When do you re really receive Jesus Christ as Lord? Is it when you get saved or is it every day? Well, it's both. See, when you receive Christ, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, and other places in the Bible as well that we'll come to in this series, when you receive Jesus, you really give all you know about yourself to everything you know about Jesus. The problem is you don't know much about yourself, and you know very little about Jesus. And so it's like a keys on key rings. You know, here is the big key, and God opens up the door, and you have Jesus Christ as your Lord, and that's your attitude. That is your motive. You want Jesus on the throne of your life, but in reality, he's on the throne at salvation in a very small portion of your life. Maybe the worst things that you confess before the Lord. But then you're, you're living in life, you've got this blind spot, God convicts you about something, and then you have a, a choice. There's another key there, and you think to yourself, well, okay, I know I need to give this area of my life to the Lord. Boy, it's just so hard. But then you do it and he's Lord of your life. And then maybe there's another key in another room and another place in your, your soul and your spirit that you have, and it's a constantly a growing experience. The best way I can describe this is that when you and I receive Christ, we are forgiven of everything that we've ever done. We are forgiven, so we are saved from the penalty of sin. But then, as we live the Christian life, we then become saved from the power of sin in our life. And so it is a one-time one event, but then it's applied day by day by day by day. And so you think to yourself, well, I think, I think uh, Jesus is number one in my life. I think so. Number one. Okay, let's, let's look at that. Suppose you were out at dinner, to dinner, maybe this coming Friday night, and you're walking along and you saw this... Uh, person that you knew very well. In fact, it was the husband of your very best friend. And he was sitting at a 
table in a romantic dinner with another woman. And of course, you're not going to let that go, right, ladies? Right? Right. You go up and, hello, Joe. Newman. <laughs> no, no. Now, hello, Joe. And he says, oh, hey, how you doing, Susan? I want you to meet Sally. She's uh, my date tonight. In fact, we've gone on about, what, three times? And I know the look on your face, and really, it's okay. Uh, my wife knows everything about it. Just go and call her. It's, it's okay. It's good. And so what are you going to do? Oh, okay, I believe Joe. No. You are going to call your best friend immediately. In fact, you're dialing the phone as you're walking away from the table. And you're on the phone, and... Your best friend answers the phone. He said, look, I, I want to break this news to you. Are you sitting down? He says, sure. And he says, I want to break this news to you. I'm, I see your husband out with another woman at dinner. And he claims it's his third date. And what's the woman going to do? Oh, I know all about that. Really, it's okay. All I know is I'm still number one in his life. And as long as I'm number one, he can date other women. Do you think that's going to happen? He's a dead man, and you know it. He's dead. But we talk about Jesus that way. Oh, you know, I worship a lot of different, but Jesus is number one. It's not that Jesus is number one, but Jesus needs to be the only one. Exclusive. The exclusive God in our life. Now, pastor, here's the problem. Okay, I know what the problem is. Same problem I had as a young believer. If I give that area or those areas of my life over to the Lord, he may ask me to do something that I don't want to do. Well, yes. In fact, I guarantee you he will. If it were that he never asked you to do anything you didn't want to do, everybody would have Jesus as Lord. There'd be no sacrifice involved. No change of life involved. Now, people will tell you, when I was young, they were telling me, oh, but God will give you the desire to do that even before he asks you. And I found that that's true most of the time. But I also found there's sometimes in my life, especially as I've matured, where I've had to do something, and then he's given me the desire to do it after I obey. So, yeah, he's going to ask you to do things that are best for you, best for those around you, best for society, best for your family. But there may be something you don't want to do. You may not want to share Christ with that person. You may not want to want to minister in that way. You may not want to join some kind of club so you can be a, a witness to those people. You may not want to serve somewhere here at church. He may ask you to do something. Forgive someone that you don't want to forgive. Probably so. That's what being, having Jesus Christ as exclusive God in your life is really all about. So here's what it comes to, to, you know. You say, well, you know, I'm kind of like that cartoon, you know, with the kite. Little thing you know, we used to do in youth ministry back in the day. Had a kite, had a little face on the kite, and had little arms come. I don't know where the arms came from on a kite. But he grabbed the string and he's pulling at the string. Boy, if I could just get, I, I could just get the string away and break it, I could fly. I could do whatever I wanted to go. Do, go wherever I wanted to go. The next frame showed breaking the kite. Well, you know what happens without the string? Yeah, it just flies around and boom, it crashes. 
You see, when you and I do not have Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life, we don't recognize our stewardship. We're not in relationship. We're living a life that is not even us. We've lost ourselves somewhere. You've said before in your own life, I'm just not myself today. You're not yourself at all outside of Christ, outside the original design to have a relationship with him. Jesus was talking about all these miracles, doing all these miracles, feeding the, the 5,000, breaking the fish and chips, and um, started talking about the Lordship, about really following him. And the Bible says in John chapter 6 that many followed him no more. And he turned to his disciples and he said, would you leave me also? And Peter spoke up for the, for the group. And Simon Peter said, Lord, where will we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Only you have those words. Nothing else really matters in life. What about you today? Without Jesus as Lord, without that stewardship responsibility that you've received, without the relationship of joy, you're really not yourself. Wouldn't you like to become yourself today? You can do that and start off as what we talked about last week, being born again, inviting Jesus to come into your heart where the Holy Spirit of God will come into your life and therefore start recreating the life of Jesus in you as the book of Genesis here talks about and the rest of the Bible talks about as well. And so I want to ask you right now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would like to make that decision for the Lord this morning and for yourself, I invite you right now to pray this prayer with me quietly and silently as I pray aloud. At home, wherever you are right now, watching on your device, watching from television, I invite you to pray this prayer with me as well. Lord God, thank you so much for dying on the cross for me, to bring me back into relationship with you that was lost even before I was born. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins as you died for me. And I pray that you would come into my life as the resurrected Lord and help guide me in life and help me that you would be Lord of my life and I would follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.